Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Neil Thompson to talk about his brand new book, Kickflip Boys. Neil is a journalist. He's the author of five books, including A Curious Man and Driving with the Devil. He's been a writer forever. He's written everywhere from Esquire to Outside to Men's Health Magazine. His new book, Kickflip Boys is a memoir, and it's a story of his two beautiful but highly rebellious skateboarding sons and how he becomes a skate dad himself. So interested to talk to Neil about how he dealt with some of these crazy challenges during the teenage years and ultimately what lessons he learned that other parents can take away from this. So the book is Kickflip Boys. It's really fun and it's it's an interesting way to structure a book because it's sort of, from your perspective as a father, kind of like this coming of age story of your two boys, Sean and Leo, and we watch you become a skate dad as the, the story kind of unfolds and get caught up in this world of skateboarding and see all this this beauty that's there and then start to see the consequences as your kids get older and get into their teenage years of all this skateboarding community that they've kind of been in and all the, you know, rebellion and stuff that's kind of associated with that community. So I thought it was really interesting to see your perspective on this because you nailed a lot of interesting things that in, in our research we actually talk about. And so one of them was you wrote a number of places in the book that your wife had this way of like getting your kids to open up when they maybe would open up to you because you kind of maybe would push a little too much or she had some sort of magical gift. Could you talk about that a little bit and like what you think it is about her that is able to do that? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's an interesting piece that you picked up on there because it was one that, you know, as our kids are getting older, I observed my wife's, the difference between her relationship with them and mine, you know, which makes sense. She's mom, I'm the dad by traditional sort of roles, um, societal roles. I'm supposed to be the, the, the bad guy and she's supposed to be the nurturing mom, right? Which is, you know, a little gender specific there. But in our case, it was it was not exactly like that. I mean, we were kind of equal partners, but we had our own styles with our kids. And as you pointed out, like my style was to be involved with their skateboarding and to, to support it. And I loved it. I was around it all the time. I thought it was fantastic for them. I was super intrigued by the culture and their, their group of friends. My wife appreciated it too. She didn't go to the skate parks as much as me. She did in the beginning when they were younger. And then as they got older and it got a little bit so like boy centric, she kind of kept her distance a little bit. But to your question about her communication style, I guess, her way of speaking with the boys and dealing with some of the rebellion that came later, she was just much more patient. I mean, in a nutshell, right? She would not freak out like I would. She wouldn't yell and scream like I sometimes would. And instantly to go to this place of like 
uh, stress and, and sometimes anger and shouting. She had a calmer demeanor. And, and I think the result of that was that the, the boys felt able to talk to her sometimes more than they did with me. And one example of that is, is just driving around. You, you know, I think she learned early on that if they're in the car, it's like this bubble. It's this safe space, <laughs> right? And they don't know that she's looking for information from them. It's just a place uh, where they can feel a little bit more relaxed and able to open up. Yeah. So I think the combination of finding the right tone and the right place and the right space for them to open up to her made a big difference for her versus forcing it. You know, There's also something about the car where it's like you're in the car to do something else. You have another objective and the, the conversation is like secondary because a big part of our research is alcohol use and trying to reduce alcohol use among teenagers. That was our job too. <laughs> right? I mean, any, as any parent knows, it's not easy. And and what we have found out a lot is we're trying to reduce reactance before we give students messages about alcohol and feedback about alcohol is like so huge uh, because the kind of kids that are drinking a lot are the kind of kids who are really, you know, independent and free-willed kind of autonomous kids. And so they have this really strong reactance to like being told what to do, you know? So what we found is if we kind of like almost disguise what the objective is a little bit totally. and make them think like, okay, yeah, well, we just kind of finished the alcohol part and now you could just complete this little survey. And then actually that has some feedback in it that is designed. Like if we can disguise the objective of it a little bit, we find it has a lot bigger results on their behavior. They're more accepting of it. And I wonder if that's the same thing that your wife is doing. I think you mentioned in your book, the difference between, you know, face-to-face -face conversations and she was better at getting them into situations like on a walk or in the car, like you say, where it feels like we're together doing something. Yeah. I think the walks were great for her and the boys, because like you said, the, the objective was the walk, right? And then the conversation was sort of secondary. So it wasn't like that typical parent approach where you tell your kid, okay, sit down, we're going to have a talk now. Yeah. You know, and, the, and immediately their resistance is up and their radar is up and their rebellion is tweaked. But if it's in a calmer setting, you're just walking, doing something else, and the conversation is like a byproduct of that, then they don't feel like they're have a, a camera pointed at their face and somebody's, you know, grilling them or, you know, Okay, but speaking of cameras pointing at faces, another really interesting topic that emerged from this book was actually a lot about kind of the internet and about growing up in this age of iPhones and YouTube. And actually, uh, you write here on page 86 of your book, the problem was this, as a dad in the age of iPhones and YouTube, I had access to moments that my parents never witnessed. I saw them in the wild, in action, and I was unwilling to look the other way. And it sort of happens a few times throughout the book that you find information by looking through your kids' cell phones or, you know, kind of stealing their passwords and doing some stealthy internet sleuthing. And so uh, that, I think, is, is such an interesting issue right now. And, and I think that all parents of teenagers are wondering about that. Looking back, do you think that it was a good idea to do that and to, to keep such close tabs on what they were doing online and on their cell phones? Or do you think that it backfired a little bit? I found it to be almost necessary. Yeah. And I know a lot of parents would disagree with that and think, you know, you're spying, you need to give them their privacy. But 
I felt like it was a tool that I needed to use, but to use carefully, right? Like I could have mm. easily exploited that. And I, and, and some parents would, would look at what we did or what I did, especially and think you definitely crossed a line, right? Like mm. using their passcodes to get into their cell phones. Um, some parents would think, no, that's their space. That's their privacy. You're going to violate that trust with your kids if you start bending the rules like that. And I, sure. I felt that tension constantly around how far I, I felt comfortable going in spying on them, basically, right? Yeah, right, right, to a certain extent. But in our case, there were times when things had gotten to sort of this risky enough uh, place where they yep. were either drinking too much or they were out too late or their friends were like getting deeper into drugs or we just didn't know where they were. And I felt like I had to use every tool in my arsenal to keep tabs on them and keep them safe, which was the end result, really. Sure. But yeah, the risks there were running the risk of doing some damage to to our relationship and the trust we had with each other. And there were definitely right. times where they flat out said, you, you know, you're violating my privacy. This is my space or this is my room or this is my, you know, whatever. But so the, I think those are interesting challenges for parents because they can see their kids out in the wild like we did if they if their kids have youtube channels or you know instagram pages or whatever you know it's just all there it's a whole different world and parents are still figuring out how to deal with it i think i think it's fascinating because now the book is out yeah so all of the uh spying that you did now is public knowledge and i assume that you've run this manuscript by your family before publishing it right so oh uh, yeah yeah so i'm interested in that was there a lot of things in here that your kids didn't know yet i mean definitely some of the some of that kind of stuff like the extent to which you were uh looking through their text messages sometimes when things seemed fishy because one thing I'd say about this book, and I noticed a number of the comments say this also, is it's like brutally honest, you know? It's like no no holds barred. Uh, it feels like a really raw account. And so I'm curious from your perspective now, having gone through this full disclosure process with your family, what your kids think about all of that yeah. spying. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was a really interesting part of the process for me and, and <laughs> challenging, right? As you can imagine. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I'll say one point about the book. Like, I really wanted it to be, I wanted to come clean about everything, about how vulnerable I felt. I wanted to come clean about the mistakes I made so that other parents could read it and A, feel like, hey, maybe we're not so bad. Yeah, right. Uh, and B, feel like they're not alone. You Someone know, else like, has gone through this stuff it, too. Exactly, right. And and I've heard from yeah. early readers and other parents who I shared the books with who said the, exactly that same thing. Like we, they identified with so many of the situations that we went through. So yeah. um, I, I hope it's helpful to, to other parents. But the process of talking with my kids about it, and I, I just wrote a, a story about this process of negotiating with family around how, what you say, what you don't say. So I, early on, the book was not necessarily designed to be this personal. And I started sure. it years ago before we got into the high school years. So I thought it'll be about skate culture. Oh, it'll be about, wow. you know, the early days of our, my kids, you know, skating experience and some of our fun times together. And then oh, as I, I was writing it little by little, we got into the sort of the darker aspects of skateboarding and we got into the darker aspects of the teen years and high school and drug use. And so the book yeah. just sort of kept going in that direction. So 
when it finally got to a point where I had a manuscript, I felt like I had to share it with the boys and let them know, here's where this thing is headed, you know, and yeah. what do you think? And along the way, I would ask them questions. I would try and get them engaged in the book. Like, hey, do you remember that time we did this? And, mm. and a lot of those times they would say, oh, you're not going to write about that, are you? You know, where they so they they slowly realized where I was headed with this. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And they kept their distance at times until I almost at times had to force them and say, "No, I really need you to read this because I want you to know what's coming, and I want you to have a sure. say in what in what stays and what goes." So there were a lot of kind of brutal episodes of me sharing manuscript pages with them, and then they them sending it back to me with just like pages xed out, like no, you no, can't no, no, say no. that. What are that. you crazy? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I think that was necessary for the book, right? Like I had yeah. to let them know it was coming. I had to give them the opportunity to say no, but I also, you know, I wanted it to be like you said, honest and raw. So I also wanted to convince them that it was okay to keep a lot of it in mm. for the benefit of the book, for the benefit of other parents who are reading it. And, and almost this was tricky too. I tried to convince them at some point you look back on this and hopefully understand what I was trying to do and be glad that you went along for the ride because then you'll be able to share it with your kids because then it's like the real story and we didn't whitewash it. Right. Yeah. Right. I hadn't thought about this before, but diving into this topic it makes me wonder, isn't this kind of like what we do every day with our social media feeds? Like we post private moments from our friends and our family and we just publicize them and put them online for everybody without necessarily consulting the person first like you did with this manuscript yeah. about is it okay if we like put this all out there? So it's interesting to like to hear from you the intense process that you went through, which it makes sense that you did go through, but then to also think that, well, we kind of do this to our kids from the day they're born and post pictures of their like embarrassing moments, you know, all over the internet or whatever. And I wonder to what extent should we be having more of that kind of a conversation or is there like an adapted version of that conversation that we can have with our family that's like, you know, the boundaries of what's okay, yeah, you know, from, from this private world that we have together in this home, what's okay and what's not okay to publicize? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question, especially as it's it's easier and easier just to like basically live stream your life if you chose to, you, you know, you can have it all out there. <laughs> yeah, um, right. And there are different versions of it too, right? There are the kids posting mm. their stuff over here, parents posting their stuff over here. And I think often, and I, I, I know this is the case with our family, we're not talking about what we're saying about each other on the internet, basically, right? We're right. not, as parents, we're not saying, hey, I'd really like to post all of your graduation photos or your would kid photos. Would that be okay with you? Yeah, like, would it be yeah. okay, right? Yeah. Right. Um, and I think we've all gotten sort of numb to the idea that our our, our lives are there for, mm. you know, for sharing with the world. But different kids have different views of that and different comfort levels. And parents yeah. do too. So I think, yeah, talking more about that is a great idea. It's kind of a cool concept. And setting the boundaries, like you said, like here are the things I'm comfortable with. I don't mind you sharing this, but I would prefer if you didn't do this, this, or this, you know? Yeah. And we've all seen those shots, uh, you know, Facebook or Instagram or, or wherever else where you think, hmm, that, 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 that's a little wow. too personal. That's a little TMI, you know, like, uh, I don't know, shots of somebody in a hospital where, you know, yeah. dad's worried about his daughter. Like, 
I cringe at some of those thinking, what if something bad happened and you're basically sort of live streaming this terrible family event? Or like there's a point in your book, actually, I don't know if I can find it right off the bat, but where you like uncover your son Leo's secret Twitter account. Yeah. And you start going through like all these, you know, things that he's tweeted over the years that he's like had this thing that, you know, was kind of this whole secret channel of communication that you just like sort of discovered. And it was like that uh, reverse almost, right? Of kind of him airing some laundry from the other perspective too. Yeah, so. yeah. And it was fascinating to discover, right? To see this other version yeah, yeah, of my yeah. kid uh, online and, you know, sort of funny and a smart ass and a little bit, uh, you know, confused isn't the right word, but sort of he, sh- expressing his sort Trying of teen. Trying to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whatever, angst and, and confusion. It was It was a fascinating thing to see. Researchers have looked in vain to find these birth order effects because when you ask parents and siblings to like rate each other, there's these consistent effects, you know, that the first one is like, you know, more ambitious and more of like a schmoozer to adults. And then the, you know, the younger one is more likely to be rebellious and less of a people pleaser or whatever. Right. But when they actually look outside of the house, like at teachers' assessments of the kids or at other people who don't live in the house's assessments of the kids, the effects disappear. And what they've kind of come to discover is that our behavior is so context-dependent. Kids, you know, they act one way in the family and then they act a different way out in the world. So yes, there might be birth order effects in the house, but when kids get out into the world, their behavior is modified in a different way. And you kind of talk about this moment and the book of seeing your son in, I think it's his first job. He's at a grocery store and you've just had like kind of a rough morning with them or whatever, but he, you know, went off to work and now he's bagging people's groceries with a smile and like interacting with them in a positive way that you wouldn't have pictured him doing. It was interesting. It just made me think so much about that, like context dependency. Well, and I think to that point, like on the one hand, we're talking about how you, you're able to see your kids in the world through social media. But you're seeing just a slice of them. And it's a very selective slice and and maybe not the best representation of who they are, right? And then the rest of the time, Mm. they're out living their life. They're at school. They're interacting with their friends. They're out out in the world. And you're not seeing those moments. And so that Uh. scene that you describe where I see my son actually working and talking to people, I think he had woke up with a hangover that morning and we had a rough (laughs) night the night before. But then, and then I see him and he's just, he's fine, you know? And and it's one of those many reminders that they're fine. They're going to be okay. You know? And I think one of the takeaways in the book is for me was like, relax. I wish I had figured out a way to relax about them Mm. and their future along the way, like much sooner instead of stressing all the time. That's so interesting that you say that because I would think that a lot of parents would look at you and say you would on the surface seem like a pretty relaxed parent in terms of, you know, letting your kids do all this skateboarding and giving them a lot of freedoms that a lot of parents would say, you know, is too much responsibility. We're here with Neil Thompson talking about his brand new book, Kickflip Boys, but we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show.
it, it made me realize he was the kid that I always thought he was, you know, a smart kid, a curious kid, a well-intentioned kid who just had, you know, sort of this good, solid moral grounding and just wasn't built for day-to-day school or some of these typical expectations, but that he was the good person that I always thought he was. Your other son, Leo, who has kind of these foot problems, and you take him to all these different doctors, and he's get these x-rays and the CT scans, and the bones are fusing together, and is he, he's got all this pain, and is he going to be able to skateboard? And finally, you get him into this specialist, you know, who's like the top, you know, foot doctors or something like that, and he gets all the things and looks through all the tests and gets up there, and he just says, I think your feet are beautiful, you know? I love your feet. Yeah, sometimes all you need is to say, you know, I like what you're doing here, or you're good, or you know, you're fine. You're 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 a smart kid. It means a lot to them, and and it can make a big difference too. You know, family meals were hugely important for us. My wife loves to cook. My boys love food, and and so one of our routines was family dinners. Like not just, I mean, we would order out now and then, but um, a couple times a week, and especially Sundays. It was a priority to make a big meal together, to get the boys to sit down with us and just be there. And I write in the book, you know, there were times when the two of them were stoned and giggling and, you know, smelling skanky at the dinner and dining room table. <laughs> and we just had to deal with that. I mean, it's at times it sucked, but what are you going to do? At least we had them at the table with us. Yeah. I've always been able to hug my kids to embrace them and keep them close and tell them I love them and they'll tell me that they love me. And to be able to say those words over and over and over and to say it comfortably and to really mean it and have them know that we mean it, Mm -hmm. I really think that saved us. If we did anything right, it was to establish that, that type of communication, that open, honest, loving communication with our kids, establishing that from an early age and never letting it go. You know, I think mm-hmm. you could get into the teen years and say, ah, screw it, you know, uh, this isn't working or get mad and just n- a- allow uh, that base of loving communication to disappear. Yeah. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Thank you.